earlier this year, um, uh, this last winter, Alyssa and I went on a vacation uh, to Puerto Rico. And, you know, it ended up being the coldest week of the year. And so we couldn't have picked a better time to get away. We just And we were just looking for a place, you know, just to have some serious fun. Um, and I think we did it right, too. We left Finn, our two-year-old, we left him at grandparents, right? So we're just like, and we, we took 10 days off. So this was, it was like a more than just a week, we, we really kind of want to just get away and, and just go, you know, classic vacation, go sit on the beach, uh, eat good food, um, drink, uh, you know, some good drinks, just relax, vacation, like just vacation. And we needed it, been a long year, been a long couple years, uh, starting a church, having a, a kid, you know, all this sort of stuff. So we went away. We went away. We just want to get away from life. And it's true. You can get away from life, but life doesn't always get away from you. It can follow you at times. Um, so one of those days in Puerto Rico, it just started as one of the just classic vacation days. I mean, it was gorgeous. Sun was shining. There's palm trees right outside the house we're staying at. Um, it's a nice 75, uh, in the, in the cooler in the shade, hotter in the sun. I mean, it's just perfect. And there's a good breeze. We get up. We sleep in. Uh, which is awesome, and uh, not something we all often get to do. So we sleep in, we take our time, we, we walk a block down and get Puerto Rican coffee, which is just, you know, just stronger than American. And, um, and then we walk another block, and we're at the beach. And so Alyssa, she goes, she sits in the sun. I, I go, and I, I sit 50 yards away in the, in the, uh, the shade um, because I don't do well in the sun for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, but I have one goal, and this is something I've done in vacation for the last, uh, you know, like seven years. When I go on vacation, I, there's something I like to do. I like to just, I like to write. And I specifically like to write uh, this novel I've been working on. And I really only work on it on vacation. So I, I'm probably never going to finish this novel because I work on it two weeks out of the year. But I just enjoy the process of the creativity. I just love creativity. And so I, I pull my, I got, I'm sitting in the shade. I pull out uh, my, my journal. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite there to write. You know, I'm not quite, my mind's not in it. I'm looking at the beach. I'm just enjoying it. And, uh, and then something happened. Leaning uh, against uh, a stump under another palm tree, the palm tree next door, the next door palm tree, uh, was this young man. And at first, I assumed he was homeless. Either way, he seemed high and was smoking. He had two unopened beers uh, on the stump behind him. It's 10 a.m., okay? So I don't, something's going on over here. And I glanced at him, as you do, and he glanced at me, and then he waved and smiled, and I smiled, and then I glanced back away, and I immediately thought, please don't come over here and talk to me. <laughs> have, have you ever been, you know, set up to do something you enjoy? Uh, you're just about ready to have a good time. You, you've, you've cleared the schedule. You've, you know, you've flown to an island Whatever, to just be able to relax, and then um, someone or something prevents you from doing the thing that you love. You know, maybe you're watching your favorite show, and your phone rings, or you've spent all afternoon preparing a dish, and your kid gets sick and throws up all over the table, or, or, or you're about to finish this project, and the salesman will not leave your front door, or you're on the beach, and some possibly homeless guy who's clearly high wants to chat you up. So he comes over, and he talks for like two hours to me. It might have been 30 minutes, but it was two hours of vacation time, regardless. We're in a series right now uh, called Serious Fun. We're taking a serious look at what it means to have fun. And last week, we talked about serious rest, uh, how creating margin in your life is essential to finding joy in life. 
and, and how we were created to take a day of rest. Today, I want to talk about serious distractions. What do you do when people or circumstances or whatever prevent us from enjoying life? When people or circumstances get in the way of serious fun? So to do that, I want to look at uh, the person of Jesus. Here's the, the Jesus, the, the one who is God in the flesh, who comes and lives amongst us, whose first miracle, by the way, was keeping the party going by, by, by wine, you know, providing wine for a wedding party, and then goes and enjoys life. Now, we spent all of Lent talking about how Jesus' journey to Jerusalem was difficult, and all this sacrifice, and how he'd be rejected and suffer, all this sort of stuff. And Jesus' life and his ministry, especially at the end, was filled with suffering. But I don't think his entire life was one of suffering. Jesus, I think, took time to enjoy himself. He had to do it in the midst of a very busy schedule. I mean, he's God of the universe and all, and very popular. But he took time to get away. He took time to rest. And I'm going to suggest today that he took time to enjoy himself. And I'm going to share with you what I think was Jesus's favorite um, activity for fun. And uh, it's based in a lot of scripture, which is sprinkled with a little bit of conjecture. So I'm just going to be upfront about that uh, at the beginning. Um, but uh, I enjoy a lot of different things, um, from watching movies to, to writing to pretty much any experience that's interesting. I'm an Enneagram 7, if anyone knows what that means. But here's my theory on what Jesus really enjoyed doing. If I was to suggest this is Jesus's favorite thing, it would be to sit at a table, to eat good food, have good drinks, and to enjoy people's company. Now, here's what we know. First off, we know that this was a disciples tool, a discipleship tool of Jesus. This is one of the ways in which Jesus did ministry. He would invite people, or he would be invited at a table. They would sit down, they would eat, and uh, um, it was a big part of his ministry. He, he did it a lot. He included it in most of his, so many of his parables had to do with sitting around a table, and then he built an entire sacrament around it, right? This new sacrament, you got baptism and communion, whole sacrament around sitting around a table and doing what? Eating and drinking. But more than just a discipleship tool and more than just a ministry tactic, I think it's something that Jesus really enjoyed. And, I, and I'm going to explain why, but before I do, let's just admit it's a normal thing to enjoy. How many of you would say that, like, that's one of the things I enjoy doing? Whether it's a Friday night or, you know, just during the week or if you're on vacation, like, how many of you, when you're trying to have a good time, it involves people you like? food you like, and drinks you like, right? That's totally, totally reasonable thing to enjoy. Um, and it's super universal. It exists in all, every culture has this experience of like, no, let's sit together, let's eat, and let's drink, and let's spend time together. And it was obviously important in the Hebrew culture. It was important around the sacrament, uh, around their experience of Passover and, and et cetera. So it's fair to assume Jesus enjoyed it. But here's another reason why I think it was Jesus's go-to for having fun. There's this really peculiar verse in both Matthew and Luke that talks about how people viewed Jesus. Um, I'm going to read to you the, the version in Luke. It's Luke 7:34. Here, here it is. It says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The way in which Jesus lived his life, the way in which he would sit with people and the type of people he sat with, people on the outside looking at Jesus' behavior said, Well, he's clearly um, a glutton and a drunkard, a drunk. That's what people thought of Jesus. It was the rumor that was going around. Um, now, I don't think Jesus was uh, a glutton or a drunk, but I do think that uh, the way in which he interacted with people gave off that impression. 
Here's the thing. You can enjoy good food, drinks. You know, you can enjoy it, uh, anything in life. Any of the good stuff in life, you can enjoy it at a level that is unhealthy. So you can, you can enjoy it to excess or engage in it in unhealthy ways. It can become addictive. It can become destructive. It can ruin relationships. Like almost anything that's good can become unhealthy in some way. It just, it, it, it's possible. But it's also possible to enjoy things in a good, clean, honest way in such a way that religious people looking at you is like, well, they're having too much fun. They must be sinning. And that's Jesus. There was something about the way that he was hanging out with, not just the fact that he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, which by the way, just meant normal people. Like sinners was just what the Sadducees and Pharisees would often use to refer to people that weren't trying as hard as them. So just normal people and tax collectors, which everyone hated. The way in which he's hanging out with them made these religious elites think of him as, oh, you must be sinning. See, nowadays I feel like a lot of Christians might hang out with uh, tax collectors and sinners, but it's like, really intentional. You know what I mean? Like, you are my pity project, and uh, I'm just going to invest in you. You know, where I'm investing in you, and I really care, you know, like, and how is things going with, with God? There's something, uh, Jesus certainly invested in people, but there's something about the way in which he just enjoyed people that made religious people uncomfortable. Like, you can't have fun with the tax collectors and sinners. What do you, they assumed that if he was to enjoy their company, he must be engaging in the same kind of sinful behavior as them. And so I walk away from this pastor and I say, you know what? I think that not only was uh, Jesus um, uh, using the table for a ministry discipleship tool, but I think he just really enjoyed it. I think it was something that Jesus really enjoyed. But here's the problem. Specifically in the Gospel of Mark, um, every gospel has its own flavor. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Mark. And here's the problem with Mark. Jesus comes across in Mark, in the first half of Mark, as somebody who just really loves spending time with another, with just a small group of people. In fact, how many, um, but the, the problem with Mark is all of these crowds keep coming up to him and mobbing him. So how many of you guys just love being in a crowd? Are there any people who love, just like, yeah, I love a good crowd. I was, yeah, a few of you. Uh, not a great, we're not a great church for that. Um, there are some great churches for that. If you're like, man, I just love a good crowd. Um, I don't want to be known, and I just want to disappear and rub shoulders with people. Like, and that's like a legit, people legitimately enjoy that. Jesus, I don't think, in the first half of Mark, that is not what Jesus enjoys. I'm not saying it's right or wrong just because of that. I'm just saying that's not what Jesus enjoyed. Jesus enjoyed the opposite. He loved that intimate, interpersonal, face-to-face, make-eye-contact relationship with people. That's how the story of Mark starts. How many of you are a little bit more in that vein? You can like both, by the way. But Jesus is like, no, I just want, I want to know, tell me your story. So here's the, the problem with Mark. Mark can be summed up, the gospel of Mark can be summed up in kind of two uh, words that are used over and over again. And I think one of our Bible studies is actually a study in Mark, so you probably know this already. The first word is the word immediately. The, the Greek word for immediately in the gospel of Mark appears 40 times. And uh, it's just a good summary of the gospel in general. It's and Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and it's fast. It's just like, immediately Jesus said this. Immediately this happened. Immediately, it's just on to the next thing. Always on to the next thing. Which, by the way, if in Mark you come to a place where Jesus says, I'm going to step back and rest, take note. Because everywhere else in, in the Gospel of Mark, it's like, boom, 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 boom. Immediately, immediately, immediately. All right, it appears 40 times. It's a very fast, action-packed Gospel. The second word, though, that appears almost as often, it appears 34 times, is the word Crowd. And when it appears in the Gospel of Mark, it's not random or 
Um, just sort of a side note, crowds, large mobs of people, play significant role in the first, especially, both in the first and second half of the Gospel of Mark. Um, in fact, Mark chapter 2, Mark, Mark 1 starts, they skip the whole birth narrative. Mark 1 starts with Jesus and John the Baptist. Mark chapter 2, you have a story, and one of the primary forces in the story is crowds. Jesus is in a house. He's in this house, and he's teaching, and crowds have packed inside the house, and they've packed all the way around the house, but there's somebody in the village who's paralyzed who wants to be healed. Maybe if, if you were in Sunday school, you, you can picture the flannel graph of, of what that looks like. And so this paralyzed individual um, a few of you have that image now in your mind. This paralyzed individual gets on a, a um, I can't even think of the word. He gets on something and they pick him up. Stretcher, thank you. He gets on a stretcher. His friends pick him up. They carry him to the house. They can't get to Jesus. The crowds from the very second chapter of Mark is presented as, an, as a barrier to Jesus. And, and they, they get worse from here. But they're a barrier. So they, what happens is he climbs up these outside stairs and these houses in particular in, in this part of Galilee would have been stone with this outside stair. And then the roof would have been palm branches that would have been weaved together. Um, it didn't rain very often, but if it did, it provided, you know, a little bit, but it mostly it was just for shade. And those palm branches would have to be replaced periodically. And so they, they, um, they have these stairs so they can get to the roof and do that regularly. So they climb up these stairs, they pull back the palm branches, and they lower this guy down, and Jesus heals him. But the crowds almost prevented him from it. There's multiple times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is preaching in a boat. It's so interesting. You know why he's in a boat? Because of the crowds. They're overwhelming. Picture, just imagine like a zombie movie. That's the best image, if you've ever seen a zombie movie, that's the image, that, that's the perspective that the crowds are given towards Jesus. Like, Jesus is like, you guys are so overwhelming, there's so many of you, you keep trying to press against me that I'm going to preach from a boat, so if you come after me, we're rowing away. One of the times, actually twice, that's exactly what he does. He says, I'm going to, you guys are too much, I'm going to the other side of the lake, and both times, we're going to read one of them, they follow him, they won't leave him alone. In Mark chapter 5, there's another story where the crowd plays a significant role. Jesus is walking, and they're mobbed around him. I mean, they're just swarming. Everyone's bumping into him. They all want to touch Jesus. They all, he's very popular. Imagine a celebrity without security guards. And they're all trying, but this one woman, she has an illness, and she squeezes through the crowd, and she, she gets close enough, just close enough to touch the outer garment of Jesus, just the hem of it. But her faith, that touch heals her. And Jesus, completely crushed in by the crowd, knows that someone's been healed because of their faith. And so, even though he's completely surrounded by the crowd, he finds the woman and he does what, what is clearly presented in Mark is the thing he prefers to do. He talks to her, he makes eye contact with her, he connects with her, he, he talks about how his, her faith healed her, and he has that personal connection with her. But the crowds, of course, they, uh, they go even one step further. In Mark chapter uh, 3, verse 20, it even says this, then Jesus entered a house, and again the crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. The one thing that, that Jesus does over and over again, one of the things that Jesus loves to do, sit around and eat, the crowds are preventing him from doing it. The crowds are keeping him. So let's just stop right there and think about this. I mean, at this point, the crowds are, are presented as this nuisance in Jesus' ministry. I, one of my favorite places for breakfast is actually a German village coffee shop, and there's a guy there. He's almost, I've never gone, and he's not there. He wears a lot of black T-shirts with, like, white letters on them. You know these black T-shirts with white letters? They have, like, snarky comments on them. I love this guy. 
he's kind of, this is his personality too. It's one of the reasons why I go there is because he's there. And I've never even talked to him, but I just see him interact with people and I love it. One of his shirts this last time I was there said, uh, I used to be a people person, but people ruined it for me. Are you familiar with that? Like that's what I'm sensing here with Jesus and the crowds. So stop here for a second. What do you do when someone tries to rob you of your joy? What do you do when people just make life um, so difficult and they just won't leave you alone? When they just, they seem to take the fun out of life. And they don't just steal your fun once, they, they come and they just steal it over and over and over again and they, they just, they don't leave you alone. What do you do? How do you handle life when people make it hard? What do you do? Here's what Jesus does. If you have your Bibles, you can turn. We're going to spend some time in chapter 6 of Mark. We've built up to this moment where the crowds have been this significant force keeping Jesus from accomplishing what Jesus wants to do. And now it's a pivotal tipping point in chapter 6. And and they're going to push the limits to Jesus. And Jesus is going to do something pretty extreme. So let's look at chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 30. And we'll go verse by verse and walk through this. 6, starting with verse 30, it'll be on the screen as well. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So what happened is early in chapter 6, the disciples were sent on a short-term mission trip. They were sent to Rome throughout the countryside. It's something that's mentioned in most of the Gospels. They were meant to go be Jesus to all these different villages. And they had gone and done that. And we don't know how long it lasted, but it was some sort of period of time where they were roaming through the countryside, casting out demons, healing people, telling the good news, telling them that the kingdom of God is new, uh, that the kingdom of God is here, etc. And they come back and they've gathered together, and now they're telling Jesus what happened on their short-term mission trip. I don't know if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, but you can imagine they come, you come back from that and you're, you're, you're spent. You've just been giving of yourself and now you're tired. So this is what happens. Next verse. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This is good leadership. He had sent his disciples on mission trip the crowds won't let them rest. So he says, let's go to a remote place. Another transition, a lonely place. Let's go to the middle of nowhere. We'll get away from people. This is reasonable, isn't it, right? He's like, all these people won't leave me alone. I need to get away. Let's go do that. Um, uh, let's uh, go and rest. But here's the interesting thing. The Greek word for have a chance is uh, eukaryo. And it's rooted in this Greek word that means uh, not just have a chance to. That's an oversimplification of the Greek word. It really means um, to have a good time, a leisure opportunity. So what he's saying here is, is because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a leisure opportunity to eat. In other words, the issue here wasn't that they didn't have time to feed their bellies. It was that they didn't have time to feed their souls that there wasn't time for them to just relax and to enjoy each other's company. And, and so Jesus, we could just stop right here. We can say, Jesus, in the midst of ministry, says, no, no, we need leisure time. And so if Jesus says, in the midst of work, says, I need to take time to enjoy myself and do things that we enjoy to rest, but also not just rest in a serious way, but rest in a fun way, leisure time. If Jesus does that, then certainly so should we. And so they get away. And that gets back to what we talked about last week, what it means to take rest, to have margin in your life. And so he says, let's find a place where we can enjoy ourselves uh, and get away from the chaos of the crowds. And the next verse says this. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. 
But many who saw them leaving, it's like they were leaving like sneaky, like they were trying to sneak away so people wouldn't recognize. But many saw them leaving, recognized them, and ran on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. Zombies. This is like, like how annoying can you be? This is the absolute worst. This is where I would lose it. After five chapters of these crowds not leaving them alone, and now they're exhausted, and they just need to get away, and they need to rest, and the crowds will not leave Jesus or his disciples alone. And so Jesus does something really extreme. He says, uh, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he, now here's the thing. We could, we could complete this in a lot of different ways. If it was me, this is where I would curse or get mad or yell at them, or be more strict with my boundaries. I don't know, what would you do? If like after all of the weeks, chapters of a story, where the crowds won't leave you alone and you're just exhausted and they've, they've, they've ran around a lake in order to bother you yet again. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. He had compassion on them. And that is why Jesus is Lord and I am not. Here's what's interesting. Even for Jesus, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus interacts with or um, refers to the crowds in a positive way. Every other time, up to chapter six, they're a nuisance, they're a distraction, they're a barrier, they're an obstacle. Like it's something Jesus has to go around or get away from or, or push through. Up to this point, there's no positive interaction with Jesus and the crowds. But here, Jesus looks at them and he kind of just gives up and he just realizes that these people won't leave him alone because they're just, they're that hungry for what God has to offer. And Jesus' heart breaks for them because these people don't have a shepherd. So he says to himself almost, he's like, well, oh yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be their shepherd. And, and this idea that someone being a shepherd of people was a common idea in the, in the Old Testament, especially. Moses, even in the book of Numbers, prayed that, that the people would have a leader so they wouldn't be, quote, like a sheep without a shepherd, Numbers 27, 17. And the prophets even condemned the kings for failing to be shepherds for the people, 1 Kings twenty two seventeen. And then Ezekiel, one of the prophets, promised a new age, a new day where God would be the shepherd of the people, Ezekiel 34, 5 to 6. And then even later in this encounter with Jesus and all of these crowds and he has compassion on them, he invites them to sit, and it specifically says, green grass, as if to echo Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. So he shepherds them. He teaches them, but he does something else. Look at the next verse. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You have to remember, they intentionally went to the middle of nowhere to get away from people and everyone followed him. And so now you have thousands of people in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing for, this is the Fry Festival all over again, but with Jesus. And there's nothing, there's no, like they're like, well, you, we have to send them away soon because they're, they're gonna have to travel a distance to just even find a village to buy food from. And so 
this is what Jesus says. Next verse, he says, but he answered, you give them something to eat. He tells the disciples to give them something to eat. The disciples think he says something else. The disciples then reply, that would take more than a half year's wages. And we go, are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, the reality is, is Jesus had just sent them on a mission trip. And one of the requirements for this mission trip was that they bring no spending money, which is kind of standard, sometimes standard on mission trips. And uh, so they weren't supposed to bring any money with them. So they probably don't have any money. They already empty their pockets. But Jesus doesn't say, go buy them food. Jesus says, give them food. And he explains how. Next verse. How many loaves do you, do you have? He asked. Go and see. So when they found out, they said five and two fish, which is not a lot of food amongst 5,000 people. That is the biggest miracle of all here. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He had them lie in the green pastures beside still waters, and he gave them food like a good shepherd. But he did something more. He took this mob of people, this crowd, thousands of people, and they all wanted one thing. They wanted, to, they wanted a little piece of the Jesus action. They just wanted to touch this celebrity. You know, the crowd would eventually, they'd get, they'd get tired of Jesus. Jesus would, you know, get close to Jerusalem and on his way there, it'd all be about suffering and death and hanging on a cross. And the crowds were like, oh, I thought this was about something else. No, thanks. And they would depart. And so when it came time for that last supper, where Jesus is sitting with his disciples once again, sharing bread and wine with his, with his friends, you know, there, there isn't a crowd hammering at the door anymore because they didn't want to be a part of Jesus' ministry. But at this point, he's still a celebrity. He's still the cool thing. And they want some of that Jesus. And he, they're all clamoring for him. And Jesus takes this group that's all focused on him. And interestingly enough, what he does, following actually in the role of Moses in the Old Testament, is he has broken into smaller groups, hundreds, fifties. The implication is that they get broken down in even probably 50 to 20, maybe even to 12. And they're all now facing each other. And then he gives them food. He, 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 do you see what's going on here? He, he took what he loves to do. I think Jesus loves to sit and talk with people and have a good meal and eat good food and drink. And the crowds were keeping him from doing that. Twice in Mark, it said they kept him from eating. And instead of, instead of just giving up, Jesus says, you know what? Let me change my perspective here a little bit. And let's, uh, let's now offer what I love to this mass group of people. Hey, sit, sit together, face each other, make eye contact. And here's enough bread and fish to feed all of you. He extends to them the same kind of community that he longed for himself. Next verse, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them and they all ate and were satisfied. They ate and they were satisfied. They got to share in the kind of serious fun Jesus often enjoyed himself, all because he had compassion. I hope you'll hear this. This is something I would encourage you to remember. Compassion connects serious fun with those who seriously need it. Compassion connects serious fun with those who seriously need it. It's like taking your love for dinner parties and offering it to a crowd of 5,000. It's like taking your love for family and offering it to someone who doesn't have a family. It'd be like taking your love for baby showers and offering it to people who maybe don't get a baby shower like we did 
yesterday, or taking your love for birthdays, which we're going to do later this summer through, through our work on the west side, and offering it to kids who might not have a birthday party. It's this idea that I'm going to like, this thing, I really enjoy it, and I, I should enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it, but what would it look like to take this thing that's really seriously fun for me and just find a way to include other people in it? Yeah, it's going to get messy, and I don't know how I'm going to make it work, but con- compassion connects the things we love with those who wouldn't otherwise get it. See, Jesus' miracle of the loaves and the fishes is more than just feeding this mass amount of people. It's more than a a miracle of logistics. It's a story of Jesus taking a distraction and making it into an opportunity to share what he loves. It's about feeding more than their bellies. It's about feeding their desire for community. And that's not all. Next verse, it says, And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Even with feeding so many, there was still food left over. Twelve baskets, one for each disciple. As if to say, hey, disciples, you're tired. Um, you're probably even more tired because we just passed out food to 5,000 people. Here's 12 baskets left over, one for each of you. Now, you. now you can go have your own private meal. As if to say that, that rest and fun and community is available to not only the disciples, but to anyone who wants it. That's how big Jesus' table is. It's available to anyone who wants it. And he says, you know what? Distractions, you're invited to the table too. Pull up a chair. So I challenge you. Is there something that is keeping you from enjoying life? From enjoying uh, your day off? From having serious fun? Do you feel that there are too many distractions in your life? I want to suggest there's two ways to deal with distractions that would steal your joy. One is uh, to minimize them. It's, it's good. Jesus tried to get away. It's good to get away. Uh, it's good to uh, uh, set boundaries and to try to keep them. Um, I think it's a good thing. But it's also wise, I want to suggest, to at times, why not change your perspective on those distractions to lean into them? Because maybe the thing you feel that is keeping your life from being fun could be, with a shift in perspective, be one of the most enjoyable parts of your life. So one of the lessons I'm learning as a parent, um, the things I used to love to do, I cannot do when Finn is home. Like, they just don't, they're not the same. They're actually not enjoyable, even if I try. And I deal with that in two ways, and I'm going to suggest both of them are healthy ways to deal with it, and a healthy balance between the two is a good thing. Sometimes uh, we put Finn in childcare, and I'm not telling you that to confess. I'm saying, you know what? I sometimes put Finn in childcare, not just when I'm working, because work is important, but sometimes uh, because I just need a day off. I just want to, there's some things I want to do that I can't do with Finn. I think that's the plan. We don't do it every week on my day off, but I think that's the plan tomorrow. Finn's going to go in childcare for part of the day, and I'm um, I feel guilty about that sometimes, but as I study scripture, I'm like, no, there's a, there's a need even for me to, to enjoy some things without him. So it's okay to, to, to try to uh, get time away. The other option, though, is to change your perspective. The reality is, is I've had to change some of the things I enjoy doing, and I now do things that I enjoy doing, that Finn also enjoys doing, and those are some of my favorite things. And it didn't happen overnight. I had to figure that out. And now there's a whole host of things that both of us just love to do, and I do those things with him, and we both can have fun. That's what I I walk away from this story of Jesus is saying, you know, sometimes we got to get away. Sometimes we just have to change our perspective. And the things that we think are robbing our joy, you know what, if we just looked at them differently, maybe, maybe they wouldn't. So that guy I met back in Puerto Rico, I was uh, afraid that he'd be a distraction. 
and uh, uh, from writing my novel. And he was. He totally was. We talked for what felt like two hours. He shared a lot of information. I mean, he went on. I mean, he had some really great things to say about people from Florida. If there's anyone from Florida, I'm sorry, but he was not a fan. Um, uh, he almost lost a job a couple times for things that he said to people on a plane when he was a flight attendant because they were from Florida. Um, and uh, he shared a lot about America. He said, you know, he said, America, Puerto Rico is part of America, but they, they consider themselves Puerto Ricans before the Americans. So he would speak of America as like the mainland. He said, you know, America, they talk about freedom all the time, but they don't know what freedom is. So they don't know what freedom is. All America knows is how to work. Freedom. And he would like gesture to the beach. He's like, freedom is uh, this. It's the beach. It's sitting. I'm like, I'm thinking, dude, man, that's exactly what I'm trying to do right now. And you are still talking to me. And I couldn't even begin to explain to him uh, how ironic it was that he's like, you just need to, he's like, you need to stop working and you need to enjoy the beach. And I'm, I am trying really hard right now to do that. He went on to talk about how he, he was a flight attendant and he, he left Puerto Rico because um, he couldn't afford to live there. Um, he, he didn't leave Puerto Rico. He left the poverty of Puerto Rico and he still flies back. He's bilingual and um, he has an apartment in New York City. He went on to talk about how he rents an apartment for 200 a month because it's just a host of flight attendants who are never there um, or at least never there at the same time. And how he hopes one day to be back at Puerto Rico and to have a, a, a house and a car and to be able to make it back home in his island. And then he finished his first beer, he opened his second, and we said goodbye. And uh, one of the things I walked away from that experience was, and I don't know if it's helpful to you at all, but maybe I shouldn't count being kind as being on the clock, you know? Maybe the distractions we feel like that are in our life, maybe they're not always distractions. Maybe they're, they're a blessing. So James was his name. James, this is for you. I hope you make it back to your, to your island. We're going to transition into our time of uh, communion. And um, Jesus, he loved to eat dinner with people, and he refused to keep distractions of life from making that possible. So it's no surprise that when Jesus instituted this new sacrament, it would be built around a meal, not just because of the Passover, because of the Hebrew culture, but because I think Jesus loved having people sit at a table, share a meal together. And he said, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, that has to stay. We have to keep doing that. And so we're gonna do that to close. And I wanna relive the invitation that Jesus offered the tax collectors and the sinners and the, the invitation he extended to the crowd and then the invitation he extended to his disciples at the Last Supper, an invitation to break bread and to drink together. So um, to do that, we're gonna do it a little differently. Um, first off, I'll tell you everything we're gonna do and then we'll do it. First off, we're gonna, we're gonna stand up and we're gonna introduce ourselves. But if you're an introvert, this is gonna be the easiest way you do it. It's a traditional method of, of, of saying hello to someone in church. I'll give you the words. So if you're an introvert, this is like easy. You'll just say, peace be with you. It's exchanging peace. It's very historic in the church. Peace be with you. And then someone re replies and also with you. And uh, we're just gonna invite, give you a couple minutes to do that. And then I'm gonna invite you to go and, and you'll actually break off your own bread um, and pour your own juice. You can take it back to your table. You can take it back to your chair. Um, you, can, uh, you don't all have to go up there if you're with somebody or if, or if you're at a table, you can bring it back uh, for, for other people you're with or, or that you're near. Um, and uh, there's uh, hand sanitizer and cups. And uh, we're gonna then uh, bring it back to our seats and then we'll, um, during that time, there'll be some music and then we'll, we'll break bread and share it uh, together. So why don't we start with just sharing some peace. So you say, peace be with you and also with you. Take a second and do that with someone at your table or someone close to you.